Uh, Pastor Josh is uh, out of town doing some speaking at an event, and uh, we have uh, David Butler coming to preach for us. And you guys know David. He's a member of our church. He's a man of God. He's a servant of God. He's a gift to us and to the kingdom, and he's going to bring the word today, and we're thankful for him. Uh, But before we open our Bibles, this is just a special time for us as a church. This is when all of us pray together. And though I'll be the one uh, speaking the words, this is us praying. So you're in on this. And uh, take a moment, even now, set your your eyes, your heart, your minds on Jesus, on God. And um, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Holy God, we love you again. And we are just so thrilled to be here this morning. God, even in this this time now, we recognize that you are so good. You're faithful. Lord, you're generous. You're kind. You're long-suffering. You're patient. You meet all of our needs and well beyond. God, we have such fullness in you. We're so lost apart from you, yet God, you have done for us what we never could have done for ourselves. You have given us the gift of salvation if we would only place faith in Jesus Christ. So we thank you, Jesus, for your life, for your work. And we also take this time to confess that we are wildly unfaithful to you, God. While you are so faithful to us, we wander and we sin and we transgress all the time, every day. And God, we just thank you for your faithfulness in forgiving us of our sin. Thank you, God, that you wash us clean when we repent. Thank you, God, that the righteousness of Christ covers the faithful people of God. That you might look on us and see his perfect holiness, not our sin. So we praise you, God, that in our faithfulness you are so faithful. And Lord, we come to you now and we ask you to please meet us. We ask you to do something in us and for us that we never could manufacture in and of ourselves. We ask you to prepare our hearts as listeners for the word that's about to be delivered. Lord, we recognize this is your word, and we come underneath the authority of it this morning. We ask that you would apply it to our hearts and to our minds, that we might not leave here the same way that we came in, that we might leave transformed and changed, that we might be a mission force in this world for Jesus Christ because of something that you said to us today. And Lord, we lift up our brother David, who's coming to preach the word. And God, what a task. We ask, Lord, that you would fill him with his spirit, your spirit. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would not leave him alone in the pulpit this morning, that you would be present, that you would be with him, that you would be moving through him, that your power would be actively at work among us, God, because we need to hear from you. So we love you, and we trust you, and we give you all the glory. We pray all these things in the precious, the powerful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. David, come on up. Preach the word. Good morning. I I, uh, come here as often as we can, Gail and I, and this is two weeks in a row, so we're feeling really good. Um, We apologize for not getting to be here more often. But I tell you what, one of the things that I always appreciate is the uh, team that leads us in a way of just worshiping. It's just amazing. And I, I, there's hard work, there's effort, and it's not a performance, it's heart and soul. And boy, does that come out, and it just connects with this. And I just so appreciate all that they do and how they speak into my own life. Um, 
how many of you were just really thrilled that we were getting snow today and tomorrow? I mean, just absolutely wanted winter to go into April, right? Uh, we had a big bad time winter last year, a wimpy winter, but it's hanging out in April, and we don't like that for sure. Well, this morning, we're going to continue on, and almost, in fact, this is the next to the last segment, and dive into the Gospel of Luke that began a little over a year ago, and and uh, Josh is going to come back next week and wrap it all up for us. And what a journey it's been, I know, for many of us. Now, this morning, I want to pray, as we already have, and then I want us to dive into just a few verses that I think are going to speak right into your life and right into mine as well. So let's pray that way. Father, we can't ask you enough to open our eyes to see things that are, are there that we just haven't seen before. And that's our prayer this morning. And that uh, to echo what Ryan just prayed, that we would not leave here and throw these words behind us. Leave here and take this experience and community and hearing and being challenged by you, being uh, uplifted by you, that we would not leave it behind, that it would literally make our lives different in the way in which we walk. So we commit ourselves to that. We do lift up Josh. We know that right now he's making your name known and use him in a mighty way where he is. In Jesus' name, amen. On a pretty regular basis when I'm in conversation with people, the obvious question usually comes up, so what do you do for a living? And that sometimes is hard. Now, when I was a lead pastor for most of my life, it was pretty easy to say, well, I'm a pastor. These days when people ask me around the city of Boston, so tell me, what do you do for a living? And I say, well, let me explain it this way. I work with a bunch of incredibly gifted people who go all over the city and start churches. And usually they're just kind of glazed over look like, so why are you doing that? And then when I tell them a little bit more, and they say, so how many churches are there that you're, you get to be a part of? And I say, well, right now we're just at like 51. And their eyes just kind of, you know, 51. And then I tell them that our vision over the next five years is to see 100 life-giving churches planted all over Boston. And all of a sudden the conversation it becomes a little bit more inquisitive, and I've never had anybody say, uh, I, I, you know, I think that's a bad idea, and I, I don't think we need any more churches. I've never heard that. And what's so exciting is that we're seeing more and more people literally want to come to Boston and be a part of what he's doing here by birthing and planning not just churches, but their lives to see life-giving churches. And over the last couple of weeks, we've had five different couples who all live outside the Northeast, who have come this way. I've spent several days with them. And they've come to say, you know what? We're really seriously considering coming to plant our lives in Boston. Now, when they come, they obviously are filled with all kinds of questions. Questions if you've moved to Boston, some of them you probably had. So tell me about the weather. What's it really like? Are, are the people in the Northeast really rude and cold and you know, and all those kinds of questions. What's the culture like? And then they'll ask things about, if they've got kids, they'll say, tell me about the schools. And on that one, I'm just kind of like, do I really tell them that? Do I really go into how all of that works? And I don't even know myself. And um, then they'll ask, of course, the all-important question. I hear that it's really expensive to live in Boston. And we'll talk about that. And over the course of the couple of days with these five couples, and only one of them had ever been to Boston before, 
it's really interesting to watch what happens. They start out, they land, they're excited, they've never been to Boston. And then we kind of get into the kind of milieu of life in Boston and all of the traffic and all of the coming and going. And they start out right here. And then they start encountering and they start asking questions. And you just kind of see it kind of go down like this. And then I bring church planters, people like Josh, and I tell them about Josh and Becky and what they did and, and six years ago. And all of a sudden you begin to see this kind of come back up like this. And then maybe they'll begin to, you know, we'll walk in a neighborhood and they'll see something and, and they'll, it'll go down like this. And for the two days, it, it's kind of this vacillating. They go from faith to fear, back up to faith, back down to fear, back up to faith. And by the time they leave, I'm trying to make sure that when they leave, they're way up here. And that's not always the case. And over these last two weeks, it's been just so fascinating. Just these five different couples. It's been exciting. And we've got probably three more couples that are going to come our way here soon. Uh, but it reminded me of the scene we're going to look at today. And the scene is of the disciples post-resurrection. Now you would think, would you not, and I'm sure you've probably thought this to yourself, if I'm a disciple and Jesus has died and I know he was dead and I saw him alive and the tomb was empty, I think it would be enough to convince me. But when you read in the scripture that he has not only died but he's risen, you see the disciples in the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus They go from fear to faith to fear to faith to fear to faith. It's just amazing. Vacillation all over the place. Let me give you an example of that. Now, Jesus had several appearances after his resurrection. On Easter Day alone, there were five different appearances. And then after that, there were appearances over the next 40 days and somewhere in Galilee and and where he told the disciples to go and he would meet them there. And then, of course, he returned to Bethany, which is just outside of Jerusalem. And, and that's, of course, where he ascended. And Josh is going to dive into that. And that'll be a fascinating, uh, I think, uh, message next week. Now, but I want you to see the disciples. Jesus has died. He's risen. Look at John 20, 26 up on the screen for a moment. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. And Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked. What does that suggest to you? Fear? Same way it was the week before, first appearance. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he had the encounter with Thomas. What do you see there? Fear. They've seen Jesus alive. But where are they? Behind closed doors, locked. Right? And then if you go on a little bit further into Matthew 28, 16 and 17, they're in Galilee now. Jesus comes to them. The 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Uh, You would just think by now they would be getting over all of this fear, doubt, that their faith would be taking hold, that they would be ready to just, you know, jump in. But there's this vacillation. And there are many different other occasions which Jesus appeared. But what I want you to see here for just a moment is that I think a lot of times what they experienced is exactly what we experience in our Christian life. Some of you may be perhaps recently crossed the line of faith. What a great moment. Somebody had been sharing with you their life, and you said, 
You just said yes to the prompting of God in your life, and that was amazing. But now you're on the other side of that, and you're going, so now what does all this mean? How radically different is my life going to be? Am I really going to be able to live up to this? And so you're all of a sudden, there's this little bit of fear over here. And uh, then at the same time, you're wondering, you know, how is this going to affect my relationship to other people? You have these questions and doubts. And so you begin to vacillate a little bit, and it can become kind of scary. Those of you that are, you know, what I would call seasoned Christ followers, you've been walking, Christ has been in your life for a long time, and you look at your life and you go, this is what my life really, I really want it to be, fully devoted Christ follower. I want my life to be fully his. But here's the way my life really is. And why is there such a huge gap between what I long for it to be and the way that it really is? And you have these moments. You vacillate. What can change all of that? I think what Jesus did and what he told the disciples changed them from fear to a faith in which for the rest of their lives, they hazard their lives. And the Bible says, In the descriptive words of Acts, they turned the world upside down. How did they get off that roller coaster of fear, faith, and vacillation? How did they get past all of that? Well, we're going to take a look at that this morning. So I'm going to invite you to follow along in Luke 24. We're going to drop back down into Luke's account. And what Jesus basically does, and Luke here, more or less, rather than get into the details of all of the things that led up to this moment kind of summarizes for us everything that Jesus said to them and taught them during that 40-day period of time after his resurrection and the time of his ascension. And he kind of summarizes it. doesn't go into a lot of details. The other Gospels do that. He summarizes it for us, what Jesus taught. Let's read it here for just a minute. Luke 24, verses 44 and 45. We're going to go through about five or six verses here as we dive in. I'm going to we'll walk through them, then I will come back. I'm going to make some very clear application for all of our lives, okay? You with me? Okay, good. Verse 44, Jesus said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so he could understand their scriptures, so that he could understand what he was saying to them. What he was doing here, and we're going to walk through this, He reminds us that during those 40 days after Jesus resurrected from the dead, before his ascension, Jesus taught them many things. But all of those many things were singled in, honed in on one primary message. And the primary message, we're told, was about two things. One, about the kingdom of God. Luke's second volume, the book of Acts, he says he talked about the kingdom of God. Whenever you think about the kingdom of God and people use that term, Think of it this way. The kingdom of God is when Jesus gets his way in everything. It's when what's up there comes down here. That's where the kingdom of God is. And Jesus helps him to see that there is coming a day when Jesus will get his way on planet earth. And he wants them to anticipate and live with that in mind. But then he also hones in on this very important message. And these verses capture it. It's like a commencement address. It's like a graduation ceremony. It's like a mandate. And he gives it to them and he gives it to us. And the first thing he says is, I want you to understand something. I want to open your eyes to something that's always been there. 
but maybe you haven't seen. Here it is. Everything, everything. I want you to see God's redemptive plan. I want you to see what it's really about. Everything in the three primary sections of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, the law, the prophets, every part of it, the Psalms, every part of it pointed to me. They were like tributaries that all kind of poured into one main river. And everything in the Old Testament, everything that's ever been written, if you'll go back and look at it, it was all about me and about what I would do and how I would suffer and how I would die upon the cross and how I would resurrect. Jesus is wanting them to understand something. And it's important for us to understand as well. We need to know that what Jesus wants us to know is that everything that we should be about should always point to Jesus. Always point to Jesus. And God's redemption plan, understand this, God's redemptive plan is all wrapped up in the person of Jesus. Sometimes I will ask these potential church planners who are coming to Boston a simple question. A simple question that sometimes is very revealing. I'll ask them. I said, are you coming to Boston? Do you believe you're coming to Boston to save the city or to love the city in Jesus' name? I'll ask them that question. Because a lot of times they'll come in saying, Boston is only 2 point something percent evangelical. We've got to make the gospel known. It's going to hell in a handbasket. We've got to save the city. What Jesus wants us to understand is, and he opened their minds, he removed all the barriers so that they could see what was always there that perhaps that they had missed. My, God's primary redemption plan is all wrapped up in me. It's not about changing the culture so it will fit into a certain kind of morality. God did not call us as Christ followers of the church to be the moral police of our culture. He called us to make much of Jesus. To make Jesus famous. For it to be all about Jesus. All the time. Jesus centered. And he said, I want you to understand that that's the plan. And then look at what it, you know, to, to put this a little bit further, verse 46, he then told them this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And he reminded them of places like Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Very familiar. My favorite gospel, actually a fifth gospel, I think, where it says about Jesus in the Old Testament. Surely he took our, upon our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him what? Punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. We are all like sheep have gone astray and each of us turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And in that moment, what Jesus was trying to help them to say that everything all points to God's redemptive plan. What is it? Here's the truth. It's all wrapped up in the person of Jesus. Center everything on me. Don't miss that. And the Bible says their eyes were open. That means they got it. And I think sometimes... We need our eyes open. What, what, and to things that we don't 
seed that are, are there. It's all the time, always, always, always about Jesus. Not about certain social issues. Not about changing the culture. As perhaps important that may be to some people, the heart of it is the redemptive plan of God, is that Jesus would suffer, and in Christianity is not so much wrapped around practices and beliefs, as valuable and important they are, they are all wrapped up in the person and the work, the suffering and the resurrection of Jesus. If we'll focus on that, we'll be in a great place. And that's what Jesus is telling them. Keep it always all about me and God's redemptive plan through me. That's what he's saying. Now, let's go a little bit further. Because he says in Luke 24 again, he says that the Messiah must suffer and rise, but he also says that there must be the repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This must be preached. This must be told. The repentance of the repentance of for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Now, what is he saying? Here's the truth of God's plan. It's all about me. Everything points to me. Make me this, you know, make God's redemptive plan through me, my suffering, my resurrection, the focus. That's the truth. But that truth has to be told. People need to hear that. And what do they need to hear? What does he tell them? The truth that needs to be told. There's three or four things here. Do you see them? First one is what? Repentance. Here's what needs to be told. As you're telling this truth, people need to experience a radical, life-altering transformation. The word repentance here, familiar term in Jesus' day, very common term, metanoia, which meant a changing of mind. In the Old Testament, it simply meant a change of direction. And so what you bring those two together, it's the change of mind that brings about a change of direction. And in Jesus' day, there were no road markers like we have, street markers. People would be going down one road and all of a sudden they go, hey, we're doing, you know, we're not heading the right way. We need a metanoia, U-turn, absolutely necessary. So the word for U-turn, U-turn in the Greek is metanoia. It just means to turn around, to be radically altered. So the gospel... The message of Jesus that needs to be told is that when you encounter him, you need to experience the radical alteration of your life. A deep, deep, down to the heart and soul change of heart and mind. But then he says this not only includes repentance, but also what? Forgiveness. That not only does it call for repentance, but it results in the forgiveness of sin. To where you're set free, released. Jesus' death on the cross was not some exemplary heroism, but instead in that moment, he literally took the weight of your sin and mine upon himself so that he could pay the price he was crushed for us, and so by doing so, he could set us free from that penalty. Just to pause here for a second, always amazes me. How can you tell the greatness and the capacity of another person to love. You can tell the capacity of another person's love by the object of their love. 
Bible tells us in Romans 5 that in while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Goes on to say in that same passage, while we were ungodly, while we were enemies, who did God in Christ choose to love? Sinners, people whose lives were moral failures, disastrous failures, ungodly. Their very lives represented everything God wasn't. Enemies. There was a hostility towards Him. And God says, that's who I love. That's who I love. That's who I'll die on the cross for and offer forgiveness of sin. And then it says that it should be preached in His name. Preached in His name. What he's saying there is, in his name means, not in an authoritarian way, but with authority, based upon what Jesus accomplished. This is not about self-effort. This is in his name. This is what only Jesus can do for you. In fact, later on in the book of Acts, we hear these words in Acts 4, when Peter is standing and trying to tell the, the Pharisees in the Sanhedrin why he was able to do what he did, in the healing of a lame man, it says, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus, that's the stone you rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. But some people say, you, so you're saying that Jesus is making it clear that there's no other way, no other name, by which people may be saved. Absolutely. There's no question about that. Now, he's not being exclusive as much as he's trying to tell everybody all the other pathways will lead you nowhere. And if you go down all those other paths, it'd either be self-effort or you'll come up empty. Only Jesus can do for you what you need to have done because he's the only one who can do for you what you could never do for yourself. It's in his name. And then he says, to do this to where? To all nations. And nations there is, is not country, but ethne. For example, there's the country of Nigeria, but within Nigeria, there's 435 ethnic groups. And he's saying, this is for everyone. And that probably shocked and surprised the disciples to hear that. Because they never made much of that. They thought the gospel, they thought Jesus, the Messiah, was just for them as Jewish people. But they'd forgotten what Isaiah had written in Isaiah 49, 6. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. It's for all the nations. Pause here for just a second. If I were to give you a quiz and say, how many ethnic groups are there in the world today? You know, some guesses might, you know, I'll... 6,000, 20,000, 14,000. The actual pretty best guesstimate is 16,100 ethnic groups in the world today. How many of them have yet to hear the gospel enough to say yes or to say no? How many of them have yet to hear? 46% of those 16,100 have not heard yet. And do you know where the vast majority, 80% of those 46% who have never heard? They're all within the 1040 window, which is the hardest place for the gospel to be heard today. 
But now let me just back something up for just a second. Do you realize that those nations are coming to Boston? Do you realize that we have 10,000 Moroccans? And I didn't get that out of a Wikipedia. I got it from a Moroccan taxicab driver here in Boston. 10,000 Moroccans. Did you realize there are 20,000 Khmer people that live in Boston from Cambodia? 20,000 Khmer people. They're building four Buddhist temples to reach those 20,000. It's the third largest Khmer population in the world. They're in that 1040 window. They're here in Boston. So you start thinking about the scope and opportunity of reaching those ethnic. They're coming to our city. They're coming to our city. On and on, I could go. You get the point, right? You see what Jesus is saying? Repentance, forgiveness in my name to all nations. He's honing in on that. This truth, God's redemptive plan is all wrapped up in me. That's got to be told. And it's got to result in radical life alteration, forgiveness, and freedom. And it's got to be in my name. That's the only way it can be done. And everybody needs to hear it. And then he says, verse 48, Luke 24, you are witnesses of these things. Truth's got to be told. Who's going to tell it? Who's the personnel? You are to be my witnesses. How can we get this message out there? What's God's marketing plan? How's he going to go about doing this? It's for people who have had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ and know it deep down in themselves. Those who would tell his gospel message are those who know him personally, a reality they experience for themselves. One of the things that I love to do about, loved, Gail and I love to do in Boston is to experience things we've only heard about. And um, I, it was actually before we moved here when we were living in Concord, New Hampshire. One Christmas we came down, we'd heard about it. People had told us about it, first-hand knowledge of it, about the Boston Pops at Christmas with Keith Locker. So we came and got a nice, nice seating area and experienced it. And after I experienced it, the moving, the stirring, the kind of the fun, as well as the kind of sentimental and all the rest, the beauty of it, the, the magnificence of it, how it stirred my heart at different times. When I told somebody about it, it wasn't just knowledge being passed on to somebody. It was something that was pouring out of me. And what he's saying here is, I want people who have had a radical, life-transforming encounter with me, who've experienced the freedom I've given them, whose life now is, belongs to me, I want them to be the ones to tell. You know what witnessing really boils down to? It boils down to just the overflow of Jesus in your life flowing out into the lives of others. That's what it amounts to. Your life in Christ is so who you are and the intimacy is so very real. And when people get around you, it just overflows. It's not force, it's supernaturally natural. And it just comes out of you. And people see and they hear and they're drawn to it. 
And then Jesus adds one other thing. Are you following the sequence so far? Here's the truth. God's plan. It's all wrapped up in Jesus. It's got to be told. Who's going to tell it? People had a personal encounter with him. Now, I don't know about you, but this looks like a pretty daunting task. Boston alone, 5.8 million people. 97% really have never heard the gospel enough to, again, say yes or no to Jesus. That's a daunting task. Look what he says in verse 49. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay. And what was the father promised? Well, God had promised a thousand things. But he was referring to what he had told them earlier in John 14 through 16. What is that? After I depart, I'm going to send the one who is like me, who, who will make everything known to you about me. I'm going to send you my spirit. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. That's the Father's promise. But you stay in the city in Jerusalem until you have been clothed, literally swallowed up in, with power from on high. Not human power, but supernatural power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Just to kind of fast forward, Acts 1.8, Jesus said it this way. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, I happen to believe that the Holy Spirit is the God very few of us know very well. And the Holy Spirit is co-equal with God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, co-equal, three in one, one in three. Now, I don't know about you, but one plus one plus one equals three. But in God's way of thinking regarding the triune God, one plus one plus one equals one. Now, there's all kind of analogies, and I've used them through the years, and they just don't cut it. And I will just simply tell you, this is beyond my pay grade to understand. It's a mystery. And all I've got to do is accept the mystery. And there's a certain part of it and just benefit from it. Let me put it this way. All of God was in Christ accomplishing His work of salvation. And now all of Christ lives in me. Not with me, but with me. So do you see this? All of God in Christ, now in His Spirit, indwelling me. It's the beauty of it. And what does the Holy Spirit accomplish in our lives? Just ex explain it very quickly. We'll go into more detail later at another message. Sometime I'm sure Josh will do that. The Holy Spirit, here's a good way of understanding who the Holy Spirit is. He's not an it. The Holy Spirit is God's empowering presence and enables us to experience the supernatural, make Christ known, and live the Jesus life. Experience the supernatural. Make Christ known. And live the Jesus life. You can't do any of the three apart from God's empowering presence. It's a dynamo. It's an explosive force that you can't explain at work within you. Okay, time to wrap it up. Bring it home for some personal application. Jesus is honing in on those guys, vacillating from fear to faith. He says, guys, I've got I to hone in on one message. You've got to get this. Here's God's plan, redemptive plan. It's all wrapped up in me. 
the truth has got to be told. You guys are the ones that are to tell it. But you can only tell it when you're endued with a power that you don't have that's greater than your own. When my spirit comes upon you. And he says to them, that's your mandate. And he didn't just say it to them. He says it to all of us. Every single one of us who are serious about being fully devoted Christ followers. So let me wrap it up in four simple statements and a couple of personal stories. Here's the first one. This is a very big deal. Very big deal. Every life, every day, is to be lived on mission. Every life, every day, is to be lived on mission. What does that mean? Let me put it in a simple phrase that I think you can get and I can get as well. Here it is. Are you an educator in a Boston public school? First of all, we'll pray for you. But secondly, are you an educator in a Boston public school who's a Christ follower? No. Your identity is not a Boston public school teacher. You are a Christ follower who happens to be a Boston public school teacher. Not a Boston public school teacher who happens to be a Christ follower. No, I'm a Christ follower. And that defines everything my life is from that point on. If you're a college student and you're studying to pursue a certain profession, that profession is not your end, not your goal, not your ambition. That is the means to the far greater call on your life to live on mission with that profession. That changes everything. Because it changes what drives you. Have you ever asked yourself that question, what drives you? What it is that you get out of bed and you're pumped about and you're ready to go? You see, what you love is what you live for. And we are all called as Christ followers to live on mission every day. Every day. And I've gotten to know a few of you and I'm just thinking about mega influence you have in your marketplace profession to make Christ known. One of the most exciting things about church planting world today is Church planners are not just coming, but they're bringing families who are saying, we believe so much in living on mission, God is calling us to move our profession to Boston. A church that was planted in Dedham just last year, seven professionals living in Taylor, South Carolina, said we're moving our profession to Boston so we can be a part of living on mission there and be a part of that church plant. That's absolutely exciting. Living on mission. Second is this. Living on mission simply means making Christ known until everyone is heard. That's just simple enough. Not a lot of comment. We just got to keep going. Let me ask you it this way. Pose this. Think with me for a moment. If Jesus 
were to walk around in Roslindale and West Roxbury and Lower Mills, Dorchester, those areas within the scope of the outreach of Charles River Church, would Jesus walk around and go, mission accomplished, it's done, got it covered, let's move on somewhere else. Is that what he would see? No, I think he would see and go, whoa, whoa, whoa. There's way too many lives that are being ruined right now. Way too many people frustrated and confused. And he would go through a long litany of all the things that you and I see every day. Which reminds me of the third simple truth I want to make sure we get. No one can be satisfied until the mission has been accomplished. Until the mission has been accomplished. John Ortberg is a, one of my favorite writers. Here's what he says, and I don't ordinarily read things, but I want you to listen to the insightfulness precision of his words. He says, hell is at work wherever the will of God is defied. Every time a little child is left unloved, unwanted, uneducated, unnoticed, every time a marriage ends, every time racial differences divide a street or a city or a church, every time money gets worshipped or hoarded, every time a lie gets told, every time generations get separated, Every time a workplace becomes dehumanizing, when families get broken up, when virtue gets torn down, when sinful habits create a, a lives of shame or a culture of shamelessness, when faith gets undermined and hope gets lost and people get trashed, that's when hell is prevailing. Then he goes on and listen to these words. It is not acceptable to Jesus that hell prevail. Our mission is not to meet a budget, build a program, fill it up building, or maintain the status quo. Our mission is to put hell out of business. Could not be better said. And until that's accomplished, we got work to do. We got work to do. See, I get a little passionate about things. Today, especially, I'm on drugs. But uh, fourth word and final one. The mission is impossible apart from God's empowering presence. Before we step out, take on, we have to pray, open up our lives, and on a daily basis, re-surrender and say, God, by your mighty power, Come fully possess me so that today Jesus might be so real in me. Jesus might be made famous. Today I will make Jesus look good because you're powerfully at work in me. That's what that means. This past week, I uh, was reminded of a couple of things stirred in my heart kind of prepare me for the message, even though I was down a couple of days. One was to take me back when I was an 18-year-old, just completed freshman year in college. I signed up for this deal. I had no idea what I was signing up for for a summer in Jacksonville, Florida. 
We were going to live with someone I'd never met. I was going to have a partner from Kansas who was totally different than I was. He was your hippie kid. I was your straight-laced pastor's kid. He had long hair. I had short hair. And he was cool. I don't know that I would ever have been called cool at that point in time. And so there we were in Jacksonville, Florida, and we're given the assignment. Here's what you're to do. You're to go into the inner city, and every day you're to go into the juvenile delinquent center, and you're to spend all day with those kids. You're to make Christ known. And then in the afternoons, you go down to the beach, and you're to begin to just share Christ with the people there. And then on the weekends, you're to hang out with a student group, and you're to lead them. These two small churches. I was 18 years old. And I can remember after about the first week or two thinking, I can't do this. This is crazy. It was so hard. It was so overwhelming. And in all of my packing, I tossed in a little book from what was then known as Campus Crusade. Today it's crew. Just a little blue book. They called it the bird book. A little booklet. On the front of it, it said, have you made the wonderful discovery of the spirit-filled life? So alone, Neptune Beach, Florida, for the first time in my life, even though I'd heard of, I began to read through that. And for the first time in my life, I experienced the fullness of God's spirit in my life. And over the next several weeks, I watched the impossible. I watched God do amazing, amazing things. I would have never seen on my own. That was a defining moment in my life I've never forgotten. I wish I could tell you that it's been consistent all the way through my 43 years of ministry. You're saying, you're that old? <laughs> Josh always tells me he's glad when Kill and I show up because the average age of the church just went up. But over the years... The moments that I most remember were those moments when I stepped back and I'm going, only God could have done this. And that's what we want. And what happened? Here's the second thing I'll leave you with. This last week uh, as well, I think it was on Wednesday, Josh met a couple of these church planners. He had, he had lunch. And he was gracious enough to spend some time. He said, I want to show you a place. And he took us down to the brand new Ashmont Tea Stop in Lower Mills in Dorchester. I'd never been to that area. Well, the church planning couple was there. They'd been to a couple of other localities. Josh begins to talk. And while he's talking, my heart's being stirred because I'm hearing his vision and his passion and his planning his life. And there were a couple of things that happened to me. One was, I am so glad God allowed us to be a part of Charles River Church. I am so thankful for Josh Wyatt and the way God has raised him up and the way he's using him and Ryan and so many of you in this church. And it reminded me yet again as I looked, we happened to hit it at a time when the place was pretty well packed with people. It just reminded me, we got work to do. It's not finished. And I can't imagine spending my life, however long I have, living on mission to make God's plan, redemptive plan through Jesus, 
known to those many who have never heard. Josh gave us all a personal challenge, didn't he? Luke 10, 2. Before the end of the year, can you imagine? December comes. Look back across the year. Ups and downs, different things. But wow, God used you to help somebody because you lived on mission. Cross the line of faith. I would call that a fantastic year. I hope that's what's happening with you. Final question. Here it is. Is the way you're living your life right now as a Christ follower fit in with God's plan for your life to live on mission? Are you on course? Are you on schedule? Father, thank you for your enabling power the incredible vision that Jesus left us, your son, a mandate not just simply to huddle together on a weekly basis in safety zones, but to walk in the zone of the unknown, to cross the room, to cross the street, to be with and for people and to make Christ known to all the nations. Father, help us to accept it personally where we are and we trust you and we thank you for what you're going to do as we live on mission and we see you do the amazing because of your empowering presence. In Jesus' name, amen.